Hello and welcome to the Oodcast. It's like we're all John Sim. Or Ood. Or Ood, yes. That that could also be it. So uh, episode five and we are looking at the end of time part uno. That's one in Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, excellent. So So, um, I was disappointed with the fact that there were no consequences from the end of the waters of Mars. That's what I wanted to happen. You had the doctor crying his face off for like the first time ever. You think he's not aware of the consequences of what he's done. When was he crying his face off? In the cafe. In the cafe. With Bernard Cribbins. That wasn't the consequences, was it? He fe- he's already feeling the consequences. It, it, it wasn't a plot consequence. No, I thought it was because he was, he, he was admitting that he was going to die. Yeah. Well, okay. So, uh, fantastic, portentous voiceover opening. Timothy Dalton, I really, really like Timothy Dalton. He's and got... I think he was brilliant choice for casting to bring the Time Lords back. Um, yeah, I he's think got he, real he gravitas. Amazing, and he, he spits very well, doesn't he? You That's can't Shakespearean. Fault, can't fault an actor for spitting. No, it. I'm not just, just, I'm just saying, because you watched you know. it on a, on an HD TV. We it? saw <laughs> the saliva, <laughs> listeners, <laughs> sail across and, the screen and in, in perfect two, crystal can, clear definition. Part two, Every last skein of spittle. If I can reference part two, David Tennant does a huge gob. <laughs> yes, you're listening to Oodcast. We'll tell you every instance of saliva. Well, Sputum talk- well, watch. well, well, talking of bodily fluids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what? Russell T. Davis didn't ever have blood in Doctor Who oh, uh, thank, in the first few seasons. That line very carefully. And now he does. Mm, yes. he, he, well, not in this first part, but I'm probably the moving ahead here. Bit, yeah, he does. He gets bloodied. a bit buttered, yeah, battered. Yeah. Mm. The doctor gets spotted. Yeah, but for mm. someone who's just fallen out of a spaceship through a glass <laughs> roof and landed on that's the floor face first. That's in the next first. part, guys. That's yeah, in the next no, part. but yeah. it's not really blood. For, uh, anyway. It's only makeup. <laughs> Miss Hartigan actually got a little bit of blood when she got oh, walloped yeah. by Rosita. So actually, uh, that's not actually a big thing anyway. Sorry. Okay. How so, does the lady in white get back? Are you no. going on to the second bit again? Miss, no, it's the first bit. Miss this Prophetic is... Lady on the TV and talking to Wilfred. Well, she's trapped in the time war, so there's, there's just lady, no no, des- no do way it, how that works. I have no idea. I guess they can... It seems they can beam... They can't physically go, but they can beam mm. out of the time lock in sort of spectral form. Crazy. But in the, again, even if that's true, that doesn't necessarily make sense because why wouldn't the Time Lords do that all the time? Yeah, just be and just, just find be, someone who's willing to do something to get them back. If that's, that's what true, they want to yeah, do. rather than sending a diamond across, whatever. Okay, so that makes no sense. But what does every, what do people <laughs> think of the beginning as a sort of non-doctor like Wilfred beginning with a narration for the first time in Doctor ever. Who? Is it ever? And mm, with Tom the, Baker narrates the beginning of Deadly Assassin. He is the doctor, though. Mm. And there's the kind of 
Uh, I quite like having a TARDIS stained glass window. I quite like yeah. the fact they had to build a stained glass window with the TARDIS yeah, I think in it. It's fantastic. I really I th- enjoyed it. I think my opinion is slightly coloured by the fact that every time Wilfred has appeared in, in Doctor Who, it's been brilliant with him in it. Those yeah, scenes are br- fantastic. Um, so maybe my, my opinion on this is slightly null and void. No, 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 I agree. I think he's brilliant. And I think the best two scenes in it are the two scenes just between him and the Doctor. Mm. And it's not about special effects. It's just those two being great actors mm. talking. They're the two highlights for me of, of the episode. S- episode. Of course, that's the other thing about precedent. This is Every other two-part story has had its own name. This is the first time mm. we've had the same name, but we're just with a part one, part two lumped mm. in the end. So... Presumably, Russell T. Davis wants us to treat it as one story. Do you know what else I quite liked about the opening section? Just the the words, you know, dreams of blood and nightmares and we forgot because we must. Because I think quite often the human race, you you get these standout heroes and heroines, but everybody else, you get the idea that they're sort of sheep-like victims. And I like the idea that there's been a collective blocking out of all the horror Ah, I like that too. Chris, you mentioned something interesting about why it had to be the Ood who called the Doctor. Oh, and it didn't have to be the Ood. I just quite liked the use of the Ood because they are obviously a telepathic race with a certain, well, a modicum of hive mind. And whereas the human race would find it very hard to work out, presumably that they were all having the same dreams, uh, a race like the Ood would instantly know that they were all having the same dreams and so therefore they they play the part of the, the herald, I suppose, uh, sort of presenting what the problem is to the Doctor and I quite liked their use in that one. Although we all said uh, the Doctor makes reference to the fact that their civilization has been accelerated mm-hmm. and it, that can't be the Time Lords who did that, so we are yet to find out who accelerated yeah. mm. the Ood race. But I think it could only really have been them as well, because they're the only ones that have such a strong connection to the Doctor, don't they? Through the Doctor, Donna, and, and the whole of Series 4, but, I mean, the Doctor saved them, didn't he, in The Impossible Planet in Series 2. There's an awful lot of races and, the Doctor saved there. Well, yes. Yeah, he didn't save any of the Ood in The Impossible Planet. They all died. No, he say, didn't he preserve the race? And they all died, and he had them. Yeah. He had them memorialised. Um, but you've I watched suppose, that a lot, a lot <laughs> nearer the time than I have. Then, well, I suppose what I found quite interesting was the Doctor arrives, and he's basically he's gone off the rails. He's a child with his toys. He's doing whatever the hell he wants. He slept with Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, the first. That's no, a whole I get new area. You, you have. Um, <laughs> You, it have, is, t- it you is. have two responses that, depending on the kind of person you are, you're either like, yeah, I can see that's quite funny. Or, or like, it's just like, what? what? I mean, even I if the Doctor joke. is a sexual being, he doesn't joke about it, I no. don't think. And he no. doesn't exactly. go away and marry Queen Elizabeth for no good reason and then go, whoops, that was a mistake. Yeah, but let I know. me tell you. Yeah, he, he was probably just... I think he was having a laugh. No, I, think... I don't think so. I just think he was unhappy. You think the Doctor's been on a massive time and space bender, basically. <laughs> I think he may have been on a bender, and now he's and he's deeply, deeply unhappy. I okay, like, yeah, that's a good. Reading, I, I, I guess. like that scene, but the the reason I like it is because it it gives it gave me the impression when I saw it the first time, and I knew it was coming this time too. It gave me the impression that this was all just going to be a bit ridiculous. <laughs> that's true to me that kind of set it up because the rest of it was very 
camp and over the top in terms of it. It wasn't a serious story to me at all because of the the amount of things that happened that just hot dogs and burgers and the meat have a vegetable and a pot of it. The way he jumps and and flies as well, like a crazy frogger. Is the skull thing a reference to the master when he reached the end of his first regeneration cycle? Or that husk? Oh, maybe. Mm. Is it kind of a little callback to that? Mm, not immediately. It's a obvious. rubbish one. It's very. It's a very <laughs> different effect to how he appears in Deadly Assassin. And I love the fact that Doctor refers <laughs> refers to him as the as Skeletor. Skeletor. <laughs> That's good. The Doctor me, watches He Man. Um, I had a lot of expectations for end of time and none of them were met and when i say expectations i thought oh and i reckon this will happen or that will happen uh and i think what i did like about it was that russell t davis was playing a game with the viewers all the way through he was like okay we all know the 10th doctor is going to have to regenerate at the end so what's going to happen we all know that somebody's going to knock on something four times who's that going to be and why so I was building up all this kind of like, oh, I, th- I think I know what's going to happen. I think I know that it's going to be the immortality gate is going to be used to resurrect the doctor who's died. And the time Lords are going to use it because he's died, but they want him to live and go around saving the universe and all that kind of thing. I thought the wolf with the gun was going to shoot the doctor. I really thought that. Because it kept on popping up. You know, the gun kept on being referred to and it's like, oh, that's mm. going to be important. And I thought Wilf was going to be the Doctor's dad. I thought it was going to be a fob watch thing. Really? Yeah, I did. Whoa. I really did think that. No way. And I you thought didn't. that would be so tragic if Wilf was his dad, but he had to shoot him. But none of that happened. And I think, you know, all those elements that Russell T. Davis put into the script, whether or not he was steering us to think along those lines, or I don't know if you I'm guys sure. had different ideas, but it was a big game. It was like, what's going to happen? I haven't read the writer's tale yet, and I'm sure that will um, sort of shine a light on some of this. But I think some of the plot elements that we've identified that were just dropped, like the Ood being accelerated, and there was more as well, mm. like Donna and the fact that she has a defense system and she sort of yeah, and and the, the uh, two the two what they call Vimvotchis, the yeah the, the green people that just that their last line is very it's just oh we better get out of here. He just wants yeah. I think. There were other plot lines that got dropped. And that that's in terms of TV, that's an expensive short scene to make. <laughs> that, that that's a very costly throwaway thing to do. So there must have been something more substantial they were thinking of. But which that scene never was? happened. When when the two green people escape the in the second part, which we shouldn't really be talking <laughs> about. And also so, no, what well, I'm talking about the bit where we see the accelerated Ood civilization there's mm. an, you don't need any yeah. of that because it doesn't mean anything like the Ood more than capable of talking yeah you know, i mean uh, it just is it, was it a just reference to explain that to went that went nowhere but the doctor says we've got a problem because this has happened but we don't find out what the problem is the, the fact that he says oh, that we've got a problem because this has happened made me start to think well maybe this is sort of an effect of the end of time maybe yeah. things are speeding up it before it... generally when you have evolution and you have a, a sort of a perilous situation things that respond fastest to it survive for longest so the Ood's telepathic ability their ability to contact him has been accelerated as a result of the doctor's actions and as a result of the end of time and the fact that he's been jollying all over the universe attempting to avoid this slap on the wrist karmic slap on the wrist that is just about to arrive 
is very obvious. That doesn't work because it's not just their telepathic ability that's evolved, it's their whole civilization. You can see the strange buildings in the snow and all that kind of malarkey. Are you saying that if uh, a race's mental capacity increases exponentially, their architectural ability will probably decrease or what? Oh, well, that's a fair point. Okay. No, I take the point. No. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Okay, you guys had a bit of a bugbear with what I just said. Can I make my massive bugbear? Lucy Saxon. He has left his imprint on you as his wife, and we will get it off in the form of lipstick. (laughs) What? Was it lipstick lipstick or was it basically just a... a, She wasn't wearing lipstick because she was in a cell. Yes, I know, but they put lipstick lipstick on the flipping tissue. Yeah, there Mm. was lipstick on the tissue. But I was imagining that was it wasn't the lipstick they were going for. It was the genetic material. Yeah. Because after several years. No, I don't think Time Lord. This is getting really deep. I don't really want to talk. But I mean, presumably the fact that she remembers him when no one else does means that somehow during the very close mind control that he had with her over that period, he has, uh, you know, she has some Time Lord-esque perception. She has gained Mm. some part of... Of, of being a timeless. She must, she's been changed by close proximity to him. And to put it more simply, we all know that a, a genetic transfer can happen with a kiss from a Time Lord, a la... Which story? Oh, yes. Smith, Smith and, and Jones. Jones. Yeah. The Doctor Snogs Martha. To, to, and to she stop her being... Oh, and right. Goes, you can no, mess not, with her mind. I'm not kissing you. It's just a genetic transfer. Okay. So, yeah. Okay. So like, that oh, actually nice. has precedent. Nice. Nice. Very good. Mm. Okay. All right. I, I revoke I, that then. I, I, but I'm not sure what the point of that part of the story was. To bring I, the master back. And make... <laughs> but he was coming back anyway. They didn't need Lucy Saxon just to be there and torture her by seeing the master come back, only for her to sprinkle her death potion on him and, and make him half Okay, dark. now, here's one of my bugbears. It's the Russell T. Davis. Okay, I need a thing to do this, so I'm just going to make up a name. And, I mean, to some extent, I admire it because it cuts out all the kind of... Something that Star Trek's very... Uh, prone to which is uh, techno babble and uh, obviously I don't know if it's just an urban legend but a lot of people say that in Star Trek when people are writing scripts when when there is one of those areas where something gets solved by technology they just write the dialogue and then just do brackets techno babble here and then <laughs> there's a whole department that has a kind of that, whose only task is to make sure the techno babble is all sort of concurrent with each other bring out the spongiform quangoofalector <laughs> exactly and having that, I hate that sort of stuff. But Russell T. Davis brings it to completely the other level by going, right, we need a potion that gives life. Potion of life. <laughs> and then the wife has the opposite. Potion of death. Oh, it's just, it's just a little bit too mm. simplistic. If there was something a little bit clever, it, in between those two points where you just make up words and... You're just speaking like, in plain yeah. English. There's got to be a it's, middle way. It's too shorthand, isn't it? Uh, there's the anti-plastic line in the <laughs> rose, which has always made me go, anti-plastic. That's like, should have a name, really. I mean, it's like, we all Solvent. know. Yeah. <laughs> plastic dissolver, anti-plastic. Maybe we could turn build on this a bit. It's, the, it's, uh, it's basically, I am rubber, you are glue writ large. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a playground taunt. It, it's like fighting Turn. fighting the ice warriors with the ice from your car. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the only thing that was good in that scene was John Sim, but he was great. I mean, just the utter insanity and madness. I, I really did feel dread when listening to him. Ah, oh, the drums louder than ever. Whoa. 
Whoa. Do you fancy him as well? No. He's a great actor. They both got weird teeth. <laughs> oh, the curse of good-looking people. Yeah. I've got great teeth. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, tell me something that you liked about the episode. I liked, well, I liked a couple of things. Firstly, um, I did like the scene where he lands on the Oud Sphere. I think that's what it's called, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and he comes out and he locks the TARDIS with his with his key fob. I yeah. did think that was funny. Love it. Um, and I I liked the kind of oud seance where they all sat holding hands. That was quite nice and suspenseful. And I loved Wilf, and I want uh, a, a spin off series with Wilf. The Silver Cloak. That was <laughs> well, wicked. If, if Sarah, Wilf and Company. Yeah, if Sarah Jane can get one from one episode of the new series. <laughs> I think Wilf is more than deserving. I did like the madness. Right. I did like the general, this is ridiculous, we know, we don't care. I did like that because it was very entertaining. Well, you mean the, the script was a bit kind of... Yeah. Yeah. And the, well, not just that, the performance. And the, well, the bits, like, like I mentioned before, the master leaping and kind of flying from place to place in seconds and devouring everything in sight and leaving just skeletons. I like that idea. I liked it, but it was just a bit... I mean, he's a Time Lord, not Superman. It, it, it just, it's but mixing I like things it together. That... It tells you something else about what Time Lords are and how much energy they have in them and what they're capable of. Stuff we don't see the Doctor do, but perhaps he's capable of. <laughs> of eating a person. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't say I mean this very much, bit. Billy, but I am capable of stripping a human being down to a skeleton in, in less than a, a minute. I just, I just don't do it that often. It's keep, not my kind of... Keep I mean, mate, away I wanted me. to do it to Adric, but apart from that... I think everybody wanted to do that to Adric. Speaking of the madness in the wasteland, again, fantastic sound design. I don't know who the sound designer is on this, or if it was part of the composition, but um, empty bottles rolling around. Really, really good atmospheric music type sound. And the other thing from the Wasteland confrontation, brilliant moment. The Doctor running up to the Master. What can I do to help? And then the Master gives him that, oh, shut up, <laughs> you namby-pamby do-gooder type look. I loved that. I thought it was fantastic. Andrew, what did you like in the episode? Uh, I love... Bernard Cribbins and David Tennant together doing anything that they do in both those episodes. What a team. And I I mean, like I said before, I'm kind of the same age as David Tennant. And I watched Bernard Cribbins on Jack and Nori and heard him narrate the Wombles. And to, to be able to be in something with him would be just brilliant. And what a star. What an amazing actor. He does make the Doctor cry, though. Hmm. Well, no, to be but fair... But that's not a bad thing. The Doctor was on the edge anyway, wasn't he? He came into the cafe and he kind because of... Because of what to... happened in the waters of Mars, Laura. Yeah. Do, does any, right. Does anyone else think that when he brings that up in the cafe, it's a little bit sudden? No, the I think it's into it. Yeah, they're sort of... They're talking about the nothing and then he says, I'm going to die. I love it, I have to say. I think it was a conscious mm. decision to go from that. I didn't say it was that. bad. No, 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 no. So, no, no, I, I think it was it's brilliant. It's do. a brilliant bit if of writing. If something's on my mind. Mm. Yeah, you're, so, you're sort of yeah. listening and you're like, you yeah, yeah. So anyway, I've got to do some this is the up. thing that I've been wanting I to say the job, whole time. that yeah. sort of thing, yeah. you know. Mm. Yeah, and, and I thought that whole speech, that that piece of dialogue, the 
the idea of pain and personality, everything I am dies mm. and some Another new man, man saunters, saunters away. Saunters away. Mm. What a great Whoa, man. come on. It's nice. And, and then he's stripped away everything that makes him sort of lovable and human by the fact that he's got no human interaction with any of his companions anymore. And then you get that line for me that, that proves the impact of what he's done. I did some things. It went wrong. I need... And you know, you know what he needs. He needs companionship. He needs mm. humanity. I'm not arguing that the events of the Waters of Mars haven't had an impact on the Doctor. All I'm saying is I don't think they bring about his downfall. Mm. And I think what Andrew and I would have liked was with something that big, the Doctor going all anti-hero, go mad, we want um, direct consequences of those actions. What and though he does, he does get his comeuppance, but it's not from those... From, well, from he that. seems to be the Doctor again in the end of time. He seems to have left behind the Time Lord victorious, arrogant, nearly the master ishnessness, and he's back on track. But what I wanted to see happen was a continuation of that character and then a realisation that time is unravelling, hence the title, The End of Time. Time is unravelling because he saved Adelaide. Then he goes back and realises he needs to do something about it so he gets back in back on track as the doctor and fights to save time from ending that's you want the story. a redemption story do, do you don't you i wanted that's what i wanted the story to be so do you not think that the opening scene on the oud sphere does that because he has gone off and does what done whatever he likes and he's come back to find out that everything's unraveling but it isn't that's what, no chris it, is right. it is it's he not has unraveling. To, he, it's he, it is unraveling. until the point where Rasselin is stopped at the end of episode two, yes, which it's unraveling, but not it, as it a is. result of what he did in the water yes, of the past. Because he refused to accept. No, his it's as a result of the master actions. coming back. No, absolutely. No, okay, it might be as a result of the master coming back, but how is the master able to come back? Because the doctor isn't there to intervene at an earlier stage. Why isn't the doctor there to intervene at an earlier stage? Because he's gallivanting off, yeah, trying no, to no, avoid contact true. with the Ood, who he's seen immediately after he manipulated time for his but own that's ends, not and believes clear. that that's the end of his song. That is where it all ends. You see, you, it's not you've as a got result, that kind though. of mind, Laura, to work that through. But myself. I didn't pick that up, and I would assume, therefore, that lots of other people didn't either. It's too many. It's too removed from mm. the action. It's not because of the action. Time isn't ra- unraveling because of him. And I, I mean, that's. It's just one way it could have gone. I'm not saying that's the only way. It's just that I think that would have been nice to have that through line. The only reason it doesn't seem more immediate is because there's a gap. But we've seen them the all. Two. Yeah, one after know, another. I, to me, that's one of the reasons why it actually made sense. That opening scene did show there was something as a consequence from that. It's not necessarily what everybody what we would thought, have wanted but there to is see, a consequence. But there is yeah. something yeah. going on. It's not a cosmic consequence. Mm. At the end of the day, it's the Doctor running off and doing, or, you know, the kind of things that I guess at the beginning we were saying aren't actually that mm. Doctorish. Okay, naming a galaxy, Alison is quite Doctorish, but. Um, <laughs> the also marriage and affair with uh, Monarch probably isn't so much, although we don't know. I mean, Elizabeth does let him park in her garden, so who <laughs> knows what that means? A <laughs> Maybe it's a metaphor. That's Elizabeth II who lets oh, him great do that. Great granddad. Um, so anyhow, but I think you're missing the point also that at the end of the final episode, the Doctor again chooses 
to condemn the whole of Gallifrey and the whole of the remnants of his race to death again. Well, it's either that or the end of everyone. That's the only two choices. No, it's just the end of Earth. No, it's not. They're going to bring about the end of time. That's the end of every single thing that's ever existed. So it's it's a choice between everything or just the Time Lords. Which in, everything includes the Time Lords. But again, he like that was still the choice that he was faced with when he did it the first time round. Yeah, I think he was probably right, hmm. to be honest. But look at how much that's affected him. Oh, you mean, uh, yeah, as a character, yeah. he's he, He's always been a lot more, um, oh, what's the word? Introspective? Introspective I think he's more yeah. pragmatic the second time because... When he does it the second time, all he's doing is returning the time stream to how it was before. Um, and I think for a Time Lord, that's that's just putting things right, isn't it? That's not condemning the race afresh, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, well, this, this isn't as shattering as the first time, is it? Because the first time, it's effectively almost like temporal genocide. It's sort of, that's two whole races he's sort of locking away forever. Um, this time, it's sort of, no, they should not have come back. It's a choice, straight, almost a straight choice between... Saving the master, saving two lots of uh, of of creatures he doesn't want to live or doesn't want to be. Well, there I think it's more fundamental than that. That they have they have already been. That's already happened, mm. and as it involves the tunnels, that cannot be undone. So all he's doing is returning things to the status quo. It's not like another choice. It's it's just he's already done that thing. He's just making sure it still happens. Is that not redemptive enough for you? He's restitching the fabric of time. We're saying that he finds redemption. We're just saying it wasn't the way that we it's wanted. We, it, We've it, moved on from that. It's, it's quite fine. strange. It's sort of redemption on speed, though, isn't it? Because he wasn't actually feeling anything other than guilt until the waters of Mars. And then suddenly <laughs> he, f- he he feels wonderful and victorious and then he has to face I guess the, the only thing is that he's apparently taken a lot of years to do this. But there's actually a long time in the Doctor's timeline between the end of the Time Lord Victorious kind of persona onto when we see him again. It actually could have been 50, 60 years for all we know. That gives them time to slot in more 10th Doctor stories in comics and books if they want it. <laughs> that, that can be the lost time frame. <laughs> something i found um really interesting in this episode as well was the relationship between the doctor and the master was quite ambivalent in places there's a scene where the doctor confronts the master in the wasteland and the master fires off two warning shots before he actually hits the doctor in the chest i think he just can't quite control his powers mm. and then he runs towards him and supports him so he doesn't fall on the ground and then you just see this slight look of sort of what am I doing slash disgust mm. cross over his face and, and then he drop. lets him drop yeah. and all the way through this two-parter there were these how would I exist without you what would I be without you do I need you I don't need you anymore type throwaway lines here and there and it was all I don't know this history quite there, symbiotic quite yeah. symbiotic I wasn't sure whether the catching thing was some kind of help or sympathy or whether it was just the master's sort of way of prolonging the inevitable it sort of he he has got that sort of horrible personality where you just sort of you'd prolong the agony for a little bit longer before you let them playing rest. with your prey kind yeah. of thing yeah but maybe you're right it, it could be either i mean you're right in saying the master really flips quite a lot in a lot more than before. Yeah, he one. is because mad. He in this is one, sort of, isn't yeah, it? he's 
flitting in between, isn't he? And presumably he was an all right person before the Time Lord sent the drums back to invade his brain and turn him mad. So I don't know. Perhaps there's obviously the Doctor and him were great friends when they were children. So and he's the Doctor's equal in terms of intelligence and imagination and. They're just, I mean, they are, aren't they? They're two sides of the same coin. The Doctor says to the Master at some point in the end of time, what would I be without you? Which presumably means that seeing the Master go mad may have been a great inspiration for the Doctor to do good. There's only uh, there's only one more element of the first episode that I thought was really quite exciting. After John Sim, has, or oh, sorry, the Master has become everybody in the universe. There is a scene right at the end where we're looking down on loads of tiny little masters dancing in a courtyard. One of them loses his hat. Another one picks it up and then does a jolly dance. And I love the jolly dance. (laughs) That does happen. I love that scene as well. The master race. Do we like the master race? I think it's technically pretty impressive. Okay, Andrew. I love that scene as well because the coordination of... The direction of having two John Sims, one tosses his hat in the air, the other one picks it up and does a dance. That, I don't know, must have taken an afternoon to get right, must not it? <laughs> <laughs> well, job. Laura loved it, so yeah. it was worth it. <laughs> it made me giggle as well. I'm glad you liked it as well. But what do we think about it? Because I think it was, I say, technically very impressive. Obviously, the work John Sim did, uh, mm. if you've seen the confidential, literally whenever there's an audience thing he had to do, Every single person in the audience, one at a time, costume changes. And it, and it does work seamlessly. And you I, never don't believe that there are more people in the room. I thought it was great and agree with all of that, Chris. Um, but I wondered why he was doing it. Was it so that he could triangulate the four drum beats or was it something else? It or was it just because he could? It wasn't the triangulation because he didn't realise that till afterwards, mm. did he? But... Um, mm. I, I think mean, it's, it, I think it's an effective way could. to take over the uh, world, isn't it? And also to wipe out the Doctor's favourite race has got to be something. But what people had an issue with, and I think actually they said this on the Who cast, is he comes up with the plan just off the hoof, isn't it? It's not something mm. he's... He can't have planned it because he got kidnapped. Mm. So there's no mm. way that he planned it. And yet... Later, he speaks as if it's all, always been his plan, but there's no but way it could have been. He's an evil genius. He's but an evil genius. That's a bit of a He then comes answer. up with the plan to colonise the minds of every single Gallifreyan. He's nothing if not resourceful. Yes. This is something they always say about the Doctor, so that brings that link back in. Nice, Chris. Um, You're working overtime here. I, yeah, I feel like it too. Uh, <laughs> um... I I don't know. I quite liked it because um, it 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 looked impressive, but it also looked daft. <laughs> <laughs> it it really there were there were scenes. I don't know whether anyone else noticed in like the U.S. president's press conference. There was John Sim in a massive man suit, clapping with the arms flapping over his hands <laughs> because he was too small. And when he was the Chinese um, soldier with the cap that was way too big for his head. And it just looked ridiculous. And the, I, really... I think we're going. I think we might be going second with the Chinese army. But um, I just got to quick say before before we move on to the sort of next episode, just that bit where they're all moving in time and they're all still standing out. And and also, oh, there's a bit later on where the President Obama Master is still standing at the lectern, like maybe a day later. 
that's because that's the set they've got for America. <laughs> so he's still standing there. You think at some point he'd have gone off to get a milkshake or something, not just stand in front of the lectern for the next few days. Okay, well, next week we'll be covering part two, which little the little bits of it that we haven't done already. Um, and we really hope you come back and join us for the final episode of the series. Say goodbye, everyone. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Lovely. <laughs>